It's amazing. Oh, yes. Leo went round the track with a professional driver. He we got the video. Absolutely how, loved it. How old's Leo? He's 10. He's 10. So a 10-year-old got behind the wheel of a car at Mercedes-Benz World. Yeah. In the passenger seat. <laughs> In the passenger seat. <laughs> My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Rob, thank you ever so much for joining us on The Drum's Marketing Negotiations podcast. Thank you for having me. And obviously, no one knows who you are yet, but they will in a second. So, <laughs> do you want to describe, Rob, what your um, just like yeah, what's your current role at Mercedes-Benz Cars UK? Your background and one of your favourite marketing moments. Yes, of course. Well, my role here is threefold, really. The main one, uh, I lead I lead the team that delivers all of the marketing responsibilities for Mercedes-Benz Cars in the UK. So all of the advertising, all of the CRM, the, the database management, that kind of thing. Okay. And in the UK, Mercedes-Benz is one of the top five markets worldwide for, for the company. I've also got a team that uh, creates advertising content for region Europe. So region Europe is a cluster of countries, um, geographically obvious, and we create a lot of the, the advertising that goes out into those 19 countries. Uh, last year, I think we did three and a half thousand assets, 53 different campaigns. And then I also look after Mercedes-Benz World, which is a visitor attraction and driving experience centre. I've been there, Rob. It's amazing. Oh, yes. Leo went round the track with a professional driver. He we got the video. Absolutely loved it. How old's Leo? He's 10. He's 10. So a 10-year-old got behind the wheel of a car at Mercedes-Benz World. Yeah. In the passenger seat. (laughs) (laughs) In the passenger seat. (laughs) In the passenger seat. Well, we do have anyone who's over one and a half metres tall can get behind the wheel themselves. So normally that's around 11, 12, 13 years of age. Um, so he'll be very welcome back when he can uh, can grab the wheel himself. We'll definitely do that. It was amazing. So they're, they're, they're the three main strands of the role that I currently have. Uh, I've been doing this for about seven years. And before that, I was in public relations. And I started out back in the 90s in used truck sales, which was a, a really interesting way to learn negotiating skills. I We're going to come on to that later on. In fact, if you're going to delve into your past about that, it'd be great. Um, and a marketing experience, something that you look at and you go, that was amazing. Well, there's so much within our, our own, own company, but I really admire the way that the, the Formula One team goes about doing things because they've uh, they've pioneered the Mercedes-AMG Petronas Formula One team. They pioneered some really lovely tone of voice and conversational social media, uh, I think, best practice over the over the years. And it's it's really helped, I think, energize that whole sport, which when I got into it in the 1980s as a child, it was quite techie and engineering focused and you had to be a bit of a nerd to enjoy it. But now with Sir Lewis or, or Lewis and with George as well now, uh, and the way that the team has refined this, they're, they're really open about how they explain what went right, obviously what went wrong as well. So I think that's a really lovely way of creating a community uh, around a sport that has generated such wider interest now over the past few years. Obviously, the Netflix series helped as well. Oh, it was amazing. The Netflix series is amazing. So our son loves that. Yeah, it's because it, it, it's, it's truly inspiring. And it, it's the behind the scenes and it's the reality of what goes on and Absolutely. the personalities. Absolutely. And I think the we're recording this in January 2023 and the next series is due out in a few weeks' time. So oh, I, is it? 
I shall be uh, glued to the TV screen. Oh, you definitely will. And all our friends will as well. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that, Rob. Um, so um, let's get into some of the kind of the detail. So uh, do you want to talk about your experience with multi-stakeholder negotiations? So things like you know, handling dissonance, uh, finding common needs, how do you build consensus? You, what, what's your experience of that within your current environment? Well, it's an interesting question, actually, because when we create a marketing campaign or an advertising campaign for a, a car range across, say, the 18, 19 countries within region Europe, there are clearly lots and lots of different interested parties. And uh, it, it's not the work of a moment to, to get those groups to agree. So the first thing we try and do, or what I try and do as a leader of the team as well, is to just create a very clear brief. What's the, what's the purpose? And, and this isn't rocket science, right, Mike? This is what's the point of the advert? And in many cases, the point of the advert is to get people to look up from their phones or to look up from their, their kids when they see it on TV or when they're scrolling past it on social media and to, to get their attention. Uh, and once you've got someone's attention, you've probably got a second or two to try and engage them to do something. And, and in many cases now, we're trying to connect people through to our online showroom. And the online showroom is a place where every new car and every used car in stock is available to select and, and now to buy as well. So it's once we've got that purpose, uh, what's the point of the ad? What are we trying to do? It could be a new car launch. It could be a special offer on an existing car. It could be something as you know, fundamental as getting a vehicle serviced. It's then working out uh, what formats we need that in. And again, across Europe, we have widely varying budgets for advertising. So some will want television, maybe in Germany. Uh, some of the smaller markets will just want uh, social media. So the Eastern European countries, so Romania, Hungary, they're really into digital media. And others will want a mix of both, sometimes posters as well. So that's more like just the formats. But the real negotiation comes into, into play when we look at the, the varying regulatory requirements across Europe as well, because there are enormously widely varying uh, requirements for, for car adverts. So, for example, in France, the, the restrictions include things like if a vehicle's parked, it has to be parked in a marked parking bay. You can't just have a car, you know, exotically placed in a desert situation. Um, it, there needs to be clear signage that it's parking. There are environmental things that we have to bear in mind as well. So we, we always make sure that we bear in mind as, as much of that as we possibly can. Uh, and often it's trying to find the highest common denominator rather than just what we can get away with. So rather the than the lowest common denominator, exactly. Rather exactly. than having one thing that suits all markets, how do you optimise to uh, that market uh, condition? Exactly. And, and with the benefit of hindsight, that sounds really straightforward, doesn't it? <laughs> the modularity of the campaign is another thing because you're right, it's not one size fits all. Sometimes it's 10 sizes fits more or less everybody. And that's what we try to create with our, our this suite of assets. Like I mentioned earlier, we have three and a half thousand assets created last year from the Content Hub team, and it's just making sure that that we we can serve the biggest amount of the, the customer base that we have. So there's a a long tail of formats that uh, that we we can create for. But actually, if we can get the 85, 90 percent of the European formats created and there's a degree of negotiation in, in who's going to accept what and what people will allow to fall by the wayside or well, actually you know we know that this works in Italy so why don't we try that in Spain um, so how many stakeholders do you think are involved in excuse me um, that kind of negotiation how many people will be engaged 
Well, in terms of the, the customers, the clients, the, the countries in which this stuff is used, there are at least 18 marketing heads um, and obviously people in the, the teams as well. But obviously, but we also have the agency to work with as well. We work with a company, uh, part of the Omnicom group called TeamX, and they're formerly known as Anthony. They're based in Berlin, and they're really good at uh, responding to our very specific needs, obviously the pace of what we want to do because we're a sales-driven organization as well in region Europe you know, with, with sales and marketing. Uh, we don't build the cars. The, the cars, whilst they're built in Germany, it's another another division. Uh, so our job is to really get things to market and to put them in front of customers so they can make a, an informed decision. Uh, and you know, there are lots of cars out there, lots of great cars out there. But we're hoping that people can see that for a, if they want something that's a great quality, is a luxurious product, uh, and it's easy to buy from us, then we'll, we'll try and bring that to market as quickly as possible. Probably the most the, the trickiest thing is the the creative concept because I'm sure there are lots of well-known phrases about marketing. If you want um, 20 opinions in marketing, ask five people, that kind of thing. Then we need to make sure that we can create something that actually aligns with some of the global brand work. So we've got some fabulous global campaigns that are being done by the, the, the headquarters team up in Stuttgart. Um, and we need to make sure that our sales-driven materials that probably work a bit harder in terms of generating leads or generating interest through to our showrooms and our agents and dealers around Europe. So more performance sure marketing that, than brand marketing in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think that if you've got great performance marketing, it can really help boost the brand. And, and similarly, really good brand marketing can drive a commercial result. It's not an either-or. Um, so we have a forum there as well. There are another probably 20 stakeholders in our global creative board. Uh, and that's that's probably my favorite meeting because we have the heads of business, the heads of marketing business across the world. So China, America, overseas, Germany, headquarters, our CMOs on the call as well often. And we discuss the campaigns and we we negotiate a, uh, a way through. So you know, sometimes we might need to tweak some details or, or change it fundamentally, to be honest. But at every stage, it's kind of an iterative process. So it's not a case of we've got an idea at point A, and then nine months later, the thing is delivered to that. It, it does change. And I think the thing that I've learned the most in marketing, uh, compared with my PR experience before, is in marketing, things take a, a lot longer even though we're bringing that down, it can be months or weeks for a campaign, whereas in public relations, often a story is uh, coming up in the morning and it's gone by lunchtime. It's much more of a firework display of, of a burst of activity, whereas this is a bit more like a, a season. And I really enjoy that uh, that negotiations and the, the rolling with the, the opinions. And I guess going back to the truck days, someone comes in with a you know, low price and you, you want a high price for the truck or, or something like that. You, you find what's common ground. And I think Penry said in your first edition, it's not a case of slicing up a pie into different portions. It's actually how do you make the pie bigger so everybody gets what they need. And that's very much how I try to approach things. So that I think that's a really, as a negotiating principle, um, and then this is, a, you know, it's a negotiation podcast uh, around the marketing uh, arena, but making that pie bigger, you know, again, your experiences of um, the danger is, I think, in lots of negotiations that become quite tactical between, say, you and a third-party agency is you've got a fixed budget, you've got a fixed scope. There's this trade that happens about what's the price and what the deliverables and the timescales. 
And the danger is it becomes a, a diminishing pie, effectively. So not only does the pie get cut up, but it also shrinks a bit. Whereas what you really want to do is the problems that you're trying to solve, the opportunity you're trying to create, if that relationship's set up correctly, you can make the pie much bigger for all parties. Have you got kind of examples of where you've worked with agencies or third parties, so external rather than internal, where you've been really creative because the agency's been very um, more inquiry-led rather than I can do that, I can do this, I can do that, it's going to cost you that, these timescales. Experiences around that would be fascinating. It's a bit on the fly, so I'll put you on the spot, so apologies. (laughs) Yeah, this is my thinking face. If you're watching this, I'm I'm, uh, I'm looking up to one side. Uh, so when we set up the the Region Europe Content Hub team in 2016, it was a new department. It wasn't something that, that I inherited, and we were replacing some well-established and very successful policies and processes around Europe. So we we were effectively centralising things into this centre of competence. I like to think of it as a centre of excellence, but we we worked from competence to to excellence, and the probably the, the the biggest thing was just knowing that we weren't going to get it right the first time so our job was to you know, effectively get the stuff out the factory door on time because talking of this uh, making this pie a non-diminishing pie the, the biggest thing that we have also is a, is a deadline because often if we're launching a car on a certain date or it's got its world premiere at a particular motor show or a particular event there's a hard stop and we need to have everything ready for that and often the advertising which then needs to go through external uh, regulatory compliance checks that that takes a bit of time, uh, and we've had some examples where some beautiful beautiful work has come out, really exciting stuff. But the car's being driven too fast, so we can't use it in the UK. Or there's a, a, a sequence where an off roader is driving off road, which means some of the, the the ARPP authorities in France are unhappy with it. Um, so if we can remove some of those barriers from the early stage of the process, so we know that we can create a campaign that is usable everywhere, this highest common denominator, rather than just having to to get something and then just lop off all the exciting bits um, to make it, I guess, generic and bland, which nobody wants because Mercedes-Benz and other car brands that aspire to be luxurious or well-perceived don't want that bland word associated anything anywhere near them. So so with the agency, to answer your question, uh, it's making sure that, that we can have an open discussion that actually the creative process doesn't need to be inhibited by the regulatory or the compliance side of things. Actually, I try and tell all my team here that, that compliance is more like a protective shield around us. If we can get through that uh, that regulatory framework, we can still create amazing assets. Uh, and the campaign we've just launched just uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, we've called it a new way to buy your new Mercedes-Benz. And in effect, it's it's showing a slightly different sales process in in far insofar as Mercedes-Benz now has uh, one price, whether you're online or in-store, you don't have to be an expert negotiator to haggle down the price. Everyone gets a, a fair price. And we wanted to create an advert that, that explained that in you know, 24 seconds, in 20 seconds, in a way that didn't look like a sales process change. Uh, and and we've ended up with a, a really nice piece of work, I think. It, it shows a, a character and she's outside a showroom and then she enters this kind of easy digital world and we explain how you can buy your new car uh, and uh, that's just been delivered just just about two weeks ago actually we've only just gone live with this new this new process here in the uk 
But that was a really interesting sequence of discussions with the agency who, who completely got what we needed because we'd had that that experience with them. So actually, we'd, we've got a, a pretty well-honed process now, but it's just having those honest discussions um, with the stakeholders here, the senior management, the board uh, here in the UK, and also the Global Creative Board I mentioned as well, just to, to show them that actually this work can also look as good as some of the, the big global campaigns like uh, the, the big Avatar 2 uh, the Way of Water campaign that came out just before Christmas. So, um, again, we haven't prepped this. So you might say, oh dear. I can't talk about it. <laughs> okay. However, <laughs> so a negotiating principle, obviously, um, one variable is around price. Clearly, price is linked to scope and deliverables and all sorts of things. But buying a car, over the last, I don't know, probably 100 years, when people have bought cars, as consumers, our perception is, well, we need to get a deal. So whatever the price in the showroom is, my job as a consumer is, is to get a better deal. What you've done with this new campaign is, it's basically, it's a fair price. It's a, a unified price. Is that correct? Whether you buy in the showroom or, in, or online. What was, the, what was the thinking behind that? As much as you can say without being commercially sensitive. Yeah, well, our, our, our communications team are coming up with a, um, a an announcement which will come uh, okay. in, in a so few let's weeks. not spoil that exactly so, yeah, <laughs> and the drone will certainly see that as well but but in essence the, the that's one way of looking at it right you can negotiate a great deal but some people can't or didn't or or won't this is generic car industry and don't want to not specific people feel uncomfortable negotiating a price and and so many other industries now show you a a price. So if you're looking yeah. for a hotel, you can see a good price. If you're looking for a holiday, you see a good price. You don't have yeah. to barter uh, with, with those things. And now there's so much choice in the, the car market. We want to make it easier for people to, to see that they're getting a fair price for that car. And there are exclusive offers and there are all these kind of special deals. And there's all this, am I getting, if I'm buying like this, this shirt, am I going to get a discount code? So I'm hunting around for that. But actually I've, I've spent the last few years Buying from brands that don't do that, that you know, you you know that if you're buying the, this jacket in November, it won't be fifty percent off in in December, and it's a similar similar idea here that whether you're online on a online showroom, you're you're in a showroom, you know that everybody, every other retail customer, is going to be offered the same car for the same price. So it's much more inclusive than, than exclusive. And and other than that, I should probably leave that to the the press. No, team. That, but that's interesting, Rob. That is very interesting because people. You see it on, and I'm conscious of your time, we're going to finish in five minutes. So, but people don't like to feel like their neighbour got a better deal than them. Well, there's some great TV adverts talking about exactly that, aren't they? With things like insurance and and holidays and um, you paid what? And and they're often portrayed as uh, very, very funny adverts. But the idea is what we can concentrate now on is brilliant customer service and making sure that we look after customers. And that's that's certainly the ambition. Which having been a Mercedes owner for many, many years, uh, over a number of cars, uh, I can vouch for. Very good well, thank you very much. No, it's great customer service. That's not an advert for Mercedes. That's just, <laughs> it was, you know, we see a great service. So I'll take it. Um, now then, you very kindly agreed to talk about The Last Blast, a tribute to Sterling Moss. Oh, yes. So for anyone that's not seen this, go on YouTube there's a truly inspiring and beautifully produced film, uh, and it's called The Last Blast, a tribute to Sterling Moss. Um, Rob, you very kindly agreed that you'd kind of just talk, because you were 
heavily involved in that. I don't know if it was actually yours personally or your inspiration, but just talk about what was the inspiration behind it? Why was it done? And from a negotiation perspective, what were some of the complexities? Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Um, so Serling Moss, if people don't know who he was, was uh, a Grand Prix racing driver in the 1950s, primarily. Uh, and he achieved some incredible feats behind the wheel of various Grand Prix cars, Lotuses and Van Wars, and then also Mercedes-Benz cars. And at the time, he was probably as well-known as Lewis Hamilton is now, or you know, certainly one of the all-time greats. And um, he was a, a, a person who I was very fortunate enough to get to know over the last 20 years of his life. And he he suffered towards the end of his life with a bit of ill health, and he died actually in uh, the first few weeks of lockdown. He died over Easter weekend in April 2020. And... Uh, it, it, when a hero like that goes, you you feel all kinds of things, and it was terribly sad. Uh, and I thought, because he was so intrinsically linked with Mercedes-Benz because of some of the, the exploits and the records he set behind the wheel, it'd be nice if we could if we could uh, pay tribute to him somehow. So during those days of lockdown, in the we, do you remember in spring 2020 when in the UK the sun was out every day? There was there was lots of time to walk around in, or once a day you could walk around in the countryside if you lived in the countryside or clear clear your head and I thought it'd be really nice if we could pay tribute to him and then the idea formed in my head that uh, I'd watched a cowboy film and I'd sort of seen the scene where a horse was standing by its fallen rider and I thought what what would be the ultimate way that a car brand could pay tribute to one of its ultimate pilots and that would be for the the, the thing that he, he rode or drove paying tribute by going to where he lived and um, there was a particular race in 1955 uh, called the Milla Milia. It's a thousand mile road race in Italy. And the idea was you drive from Brescia in the north of the country down to Rome and back, distance of around a thousand miles. And you do it as quickly as you could. And on the 1st of May, 1955, Sterling and his navigator, a guy called Dennis Jenkinson, who was a journalist, did that run, that almost 1,000 mile run in 10 hours, seven minutes and 48 seconds, a speed that was, was never beaten, the extraordinary daring and dangerous thing to do. And for people in the UK, it's the equivalent of driving from central London up to Edinburgh and back, not using any of the motorways. Yep. Uh, so you, you leave central London at seven o'clock in the morning, you go up to Edinburgh, you come back, and then you still haven't gone far enough. So you go from London to Brighton and back. Wow. And you're, you're back in London the second time uh, for about five o'clock. That, that's what he achieved. So that, that feat was in a particular car and the particular car was known as 722 because of the starting time in the morning and for those watching on the drums youtube channel i'm holding up a model of this car it's oh, a silver beautiful Mercedes 300 sr it's a beautiful beautiful oh sport. my word it's beautiful and, and this car has been so indelibly linked with sterling over the years um he used to drive it at various events and would do demonstration runs but it's a 68-year-old racing car. It was designed to race for one season in the 50s, and it was getting a bit fragile. So I asked um, one of my colleagues in the Stuttgart uh, Classic Department of the Museum, could we get the car over to, to pay tribute to Sterling? <laughs> Just and, out of interest, um, Rob, I mean, so this, this is a one-off. This vehicle, it is the vehicle, and it's the, it's the only vehicle. one yes. in the world. Yes. Um, it's owned by Mercedes-Benz, uh, yeah, and it's right. been kept under very tight lock and key. Worth quite a lot of money. <laughs> yes, it's been in the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart for most of the last 15 years. Occasionally it comes out, but it's absolutely right, Mike. It's, um, it's well-preserved, well-looked-after, 
And for a number of years, it's, a, it's become a non-runner because the, the engine, uh, you know, this is a straight eight engine that was designed in the 50s. It's been very well and meticulously cared for since then, but it's, it's the original engine. It's the original body. It's had a few repairs over the years. It's been knocked around a bit and indeed on that, that, that day. So um, this is where negotiating and delegating really came in because I've got a brilliant team of colleagues in, in Stuttgart who were similarly locked down. And I said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? We get the car in, you know, get, it, get it to London and it can visit Sterling's house. It's just a I, you know, concept. Uh, and after about a week of thinking about it, they came back and said, yes, of course, we can, we can bring the car over, but it can't run because it doesn't run. And I thought, well, you can't have one of the fastest people in the world and one of the most exciting cars in the world, static. And I went on this bit of a, an impassioned rant, to be honest. Um, it has to run. We can't, you know, I was thumping the, the table on this Zoom call. We, it has <laughs> to run. And my colleague, uh, Patrick, said, right, okay, I'll speak to the bosses. So uh, over the course of the next few months, because it, it took a little while. Uh, I can imagine. We gradually got agreement that the car could come over and it, and it might be able to run. But then another hurdle came up, which was that there's one person who's insured to drive this car. And that's a, a gentleman called Gert. And Gert was the mechanic. He's more like a surgeon. Um, and so one person the, in the world is insured yes, to drive the car? One person in the world okay. insured to drive the car, Gert. And he was retiring. Right. Um, after a 45-year career with the company. And he'd looked after this car and other Silver Arrows, the, the name for the Grand Prix cars like it, for 25 years. Um, and because of the risks of driving this car, uh, you need someone who's got mechanical sympathy so they don't you know, thrash it too much. But also, importantly, with an old racing car, you're not too gentle with it because it is designed to be started up and thrashed for thousands of miles and then stopped. It's not designed to be trundling around London. Um, so Gert knows his <laughs> car traffic inside lights now. in traffic. That's a very good point you raise. Yeah, traffic and traffic lights are not good for a car that overheats at the drop of a hat. Um, so that's another hurdle we had to overcome. Uh, so I assembled a team of brilliant people that I've worked with before on other projects and gave them these impossible challenges, which was how, how do we make this happen? Um, and I had this... Uh, this, this stupid idea, and this is where you need to listen as much as you need to be able to uh, you know, negotiate your point as well. Because I said, I want on a, a tunnel run, I want the car going through the tunnels of London. And uh, I came with this creative con- I want a helicopter filming it. And one of my colleagues said, well, if you're in a tunnel, you don't need a helicopter, do you? <laughs> Which was a very good point. Good point. Very good so point. we decided that we'd open on a bridge in London and the, the helicopter would would pan across the city because you need a quick you need a quick read of where you are in the world because the idea of this film would be shown worldwide, um, and then you can zoom in and you see seven two two driving through London. So over the course of the next few months, and it took about eighteen months from start to finish to to get this done. We I had the first idea in April twenty twenty. We eventually filmed it in September twenty twenty one, and and again there's a degree of jeopardy here. We had one morning in which to do it. Um, because we needed to find out when London was at its quietest. It was, it was unlocked by then. Travel was was okay. But we worked out that between 6 a.m. and half past nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, traffic was at its lowest in central London. So Sterling lived in Mayfair. We wanted to be Westminster Mayfair area. But there was this problem of traffic lights. And I said, well, the car's like royalty. It's, uh, we should have a motorcade. You know, another stupid idea. But one of our one of our team had some connections with Metropolitan Police, and and again, so Mercedes Benz is looking to do this this film, and we had some very polite 
people saying, no, we're not doing that. So for the first six months, then we said it was a tribute for Sir Sterling. And his name was like a, a key unlocking the door. And because it was for Sir Sterling, we were just honest about the purpose of the film. It's nothing, nothing really more than we want to pay tribute to one of the greatest racing drivers of all time. Exactly. And then people started saying yes. And the, the Met, who for years had lived, and I guess other police officers, if uh, they pull over a speeding motorist, there's often one question they ask. I'm sure you know what that question is. <laughs> who do you think you are? Who Sterling do you Moss. Sterling Moss. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so they have this, this bike safe team, and the bike safe team teach motorcycle riders safety and, and various things. And they agreed to be part of our procession to give the car uh, a run through London that was fine with them, fine with their, their commanders. Uh, but if there was a, an emergency, they'd need to go off and, and look after that. So, Rob, uh, I mean, interestingly, on that point, critical in complex negotiations, having a common interest, a yes. common motivation that people can get behind and start to be creative, sounds like it unlocked the door to the negotiation. You've you've hit the nail on the head there, absolutely. The, the fact that we said, this is who it's for, and this is this is what we'd like to do it, so many different people had such a, a hand in what we ended up with as well. And that was part of just letting it, it take its course a bit. You know, my colleagues in Stuttgart in the museum, uh, they were very flexible in the, the technical arrangements for the car. We, we And I listened very carefully to what Gert was saying and to what the team in the museum was saying about what we could and couldn't do with the car. Start stopping it is not a good idea because another thing that I didn't know about 1950s Grand Prix cars is that when you start them up in the morning, it's not just a push of a button or a turn of a key. You have a set of warm-up spark plugs. Now, I love this story. Yeah. This is brilliant. I the benefit of this. people watching on YouTube, I'm holding up a, a, a tiny 1950s spark plug. And these things are in short supply. There are, there are about three sets of them in Europe at the time that we could use in 722. And it needed one set to warm up. So you start the car up, and for about half an hour, it's just burbling along. And then you have to switch the car off and quickly but not too slowly so you don't burn your fingers take the, those spark plugs out and put other spark plugs in and then they're called the racing plugs and that's when the car sets off and does its thousand miles or races around the target floria or whatever so we had one man to drive the car who couldn't burn his fingers when he was taking the spark plugs out driving through central london which isn't the best place to drive a 1950s car that runs on racing fuel or and yeah, proper fuel these days uh, super unleaded it ran on and this is this is an, another hurdle and we only had a, a few sets of plugs to do it so it was a real sense of everything was was lasering into a particular point um thankfully the westminster council were were open to making sure we had a some parking bay suspensions um so that we could make sure the car could have safe passage through the air and we we with a helicopter there's one helicopter, I believe, that's allowed to fly over London and film things. It filmed the, the Bourne films, the Bond films. Um, thankfully, the pilot is also a Sterling Moss fan. I mean, excellent. Who isn't? <laughs> uh, and exactly. he agreed to do it. We had the Civil Aviation Authority permission as well. Wow. And it all, it all came. And the down insurance to, company. So the insurance, the insurance company. Got, uh, they were know. happy because Gert was there. Yep. So I spoke to Gert and said, "You can't get COVID because no, if you exactly. get COVID." Uh, the whole thing was off. The car was was in the UK anyway, so I had it at Mercedes-Benz World on display, very securely locked away on display. 
Um, and it all lays it down to one weekend when the car was also due to be at the Goodwood Revival. And it's supposed to be at Goodwood and in London at the same time. So I had to go and ask His Grace, the Duke of Richmond and Gordon, if we could borrow it back for a bit. And he was very graceful and said, of course. And anyway, the morning the morning of the shoot arose and we had a brilliant film crew. Uh, again, whatever they needed. Uh, we, by this point, had gone through some negotiations with my, my board colleagues in Germany because they were going to pay for the thing. And we had a gold, silver and bronze option of, of what we wanted. Um, so I thought, yeah, if I give them a choice, they can, they can tell us what they want. And it, I guess, appropriately for the silver arrows, we got the silver option. So we could have a helicopter, um, we could, but we, could, we only had one day to do it. Uh, and anyway, we, we filmed the film. The morning was a perfect autumn morning. The sun was out, clear blue skies. The traffic was kind to us. You know, Westminster looked in, in great in great shape. Gert was in good spirits. He was a bit nervous because he had an earpiece to listen to the instructions from the film director. And uh, he couldn't hear it because the car's so loud. It's got these, these, if you've ever heard a racing car, so if you watch the film, you'll hear it. Um, uh, and we, we we managed to just thread the eye of the needle whilst on a bucking bronco somehow. It took a long time, and it was a period of sometimes I was being told told no quite a lot, and, and knowing when to give up and when just to be to be belligerent, I guess, and to push it through. And it's a real passion project for everybody involved. And in the end, there were probably about a hundred of us that were involved in delivering this. And uh, and Lady Moss and, and Elliot, who um, Sterling and Susie's son couldn't have been more accommodating and, and friendly. And it's actually the only time that car's ever been to the house. If you if you look at the film, you'll see that the car 722 meant so much to Sir Sterling that he had it etched on the windows of the house. Uh, and it was his favourite car. So it was really um, a lovely way to pay tribute to, to an incredible guy. Uh, and then once we'd filmed it all, I know we're running out of time, so I'll be quick. Once we'd filmed it all, I saw the first edit and it was terrible. It wasn't what we'd imagined at all. So that's when you had to be a bit more uh, direct. I wasn't clear enough. I took it on myself. I wasn't clear enough in the storyboard to say, this is what we want. So I had a long conversation with the editor. who's a brilliant, brilliant person. I worked with him a lot. And he totally got it. And then two days later, the film came back and I cried. Um, it's been bringing tears to people's eyes ever since. It's no, and it does. I saw it again this morning. I rewatched it again. I've seen it several times. Amazing. It's a very passionate piece of work a few negotiation lessons just drawing out from that see if i've got them right so playing back to what i think i heard um having a vision a compelling vision and understanding people's motivations in a very complex stakeholder environment getting behind common interests allows you to break through um creative options having multiple options that people can pick from then people feel like their fingerprints are on the negotiation yes um, time, not being too quick to get the thing done. And the last one I heard was maintaining relationships. You've got to negotiate the substance whilst also building and maintaining a relationship. You're absolutely right, yes. I think any of this could have been a stopper at any time, but so many people said, yes, you know, I'm one of, in everything, everything I've talked about today, I'm just one person in a, in a huge team, uh, sometimes a small team. But the thing I've learned is that being honest and open with people and transparent in those discussions 
really just gives everyone this, that sense of combined purpose. Even if you're at the opposite sides of a table, you know, there's a, often a goal that can be achieved to, to mutual benefit or mutual satisfaction. And certainly for a, a project like this, you know, it could have been just a pie in the sky or oh, pies again, pie in the sky idea, but, but, but we managed it. And I think the, 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 the end result is, is pretty good. Oh, it's amazing. So, Rob, drawing it to conclusion, because I don't mm. want to uh, overspend my time with you, but I could talk for hours, literally. Um, <laughs> but, um, if you were giving advice to fellow marketing directors or indeed agency leaders, a couple of things around negotiating the more complex multi-stakeholder deals, what would your advice be? Well, well I'm no, no guru on this topic, but the things I've, I've learned over the years is uh, are things like with with my team. I've got a brilliant team of of managers and marketing specialists as well. It's I always try and strike a balance between directing and and not micromanaging, but getting into the details and just empowering them. And, and like you just perfectly described back to me, give people uh, a stake, get get their fingerprints into the negotiations as well. So nothing pleases me more now in this role, which I've been doing for so long, to to see a, someone come back with something that's even better than I had expected. That's incredibly motivating as well, and that that's almost it's almost like the the energy behind you is a DeLorean from Back to the Future, the one that uses the I think the rubbish you drop the trash in the top yep. and it creates this incredible energy. <laughs> and it's the same thing with these negotiations, right? You drop in any kind of fuel and you get an exponential amount of energy back from it. So, so bring your team in along with you as well. And the second thing is procurement departments, buying departments, legal departments, they're like a force field, a shield to protect you. I don't see them as, as inhibitors, they're enablers. So get those uh, those colleagues along as well, because together you can all achieve a much better and uh, more, more positive result in my experience. Excellent. And I think if an agency leader is listening to this, Bringing procurement, legal, compliance in early, not late, is of huge benefit. Absolutely. Saves a lot of time. Exactly. Rob, it's been amazing. It's been fun, amazing. There's been passion. There's been stories. There's been learning. Uh, so um, thank you ever so much for your time. Where can people find you and find out more about you? Thank you very much, Mike. So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under my own name. as at Rob Halloway. Uh, and I'm down at Mercedes-Benz World once a month as well. But even when I'm not there, there's plenty to look at and to see anyway. We've got three floors and hundreds of cars. And um, hopefully your son will be back soon. Once he's uh, breached that 1.5 metre tall mark, you'd be very welcome to return. Brilliant. Rob, it's been amazing. Thank you ever so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.